The 90s were a rough time to be a Spider-Man fan. On the one hand, the character was in one of his most popular periods in terms of commercial acceptance. There were a number of different titles available, from the hardy perennial that is Amazing Spider-Man to the sister title Spectacular Spider-Man. Then there was the third-tier book, Web of Spider-Man, a series that ran for a good long time, despite never producing a single memorable storyline of its own after issue one. In addition, there were numerous mini-series, the usual annuals, and a quarterly book, Spider-Man Unlimited, which, like Web of, was rather lacklustre. The series was also embroiled in a long-running storyline called The Clone Saga, which, again, was commercially successful, but sadly ran for far too long, leaving a sour taste in some readers' mouths. At one point, there were no less than 13 Spider-related titles released in any given month. Adding to that total was Untold Tales of Spider-Man, which came about for two reasons. Reason number one was that Marvel was trying to recapture a market of readers who felt that comics had become too expensive and decided to create a line of titles that cost only one dollar. Most of these books were risible, so it's no wonder this initiative ultimately failed, but Untold Tales would book this trend for the second reason Marvel decided to publish it, its accessibility. As mentioned, the Clone Saga was seemingly never-ending, and the story would be told across all of the different Spider-Man titles. This meant a number of readers who only read one book were thoroughly confused, and instead of jumping on all the books, were dropping them entirely. The convoluted nature of the story was also losing many readers, and Marvel thought that a cheap series set in the early days of Peter Parker's career that took place in only one book, never crossing over into anything else, would be a good marketing hook for lapsed and new readers. Setting the stories in and around the early issues by Stanley and Steve Ditko seemed like a good idea. There were plenty of time gaps to implant earlier adventures, as well as addressing any loose ends or events Lee and Ditko ignored or forgot about. It was also a chance to write these stories with the benefit of 30 years of hindsight. The stories may be deepened, mistakes ironed over, and later retcons made more organic. To write the series, Marvel tapped continuity maven Kurt Busiek. This was right in Busiek's wheelhouse, being steeped in Marvel lore as a writer, and being someone who loved making all the disparate elements of the Marvel U come together. He was joined on the series by artist Pat Olaf, whose art was not a Ditko pastiche by any measure, but did have a similar quality. Before embarking upon Untold Tales, though, Busiek had already performed a continuity implant into Spider-Man's publishing history with Amazing Fantasy 16 through 18. Hitting comic shops at the end of the year 1995, Amazing Fantasy 16, entitled An Amazing World, Issue 17, Amazing Adventures, and Issue 18, The Amazing Spider-Man, bridged the gap between 1962's Amazing Fantasy 15 and the first issue of The Amazing Spider-Man. All three issues have cardstock covers and are 36 pages with no ads, which makes it all the more surprising that they seem to be very much a forgotten story. With art by Pat Lee, Busiek explores the immediate aftermath of the death of Ben Parker, with Peter coming to terms with that death and his part in it. 
As usual for Boussiek, he pays a lot of attention to detail, establishing the story is taking place not only between Amazing Fantasy XV and Amazing Spider-Man issue 1, but also around the time of Fantastic Four issue 6 and Incredible Hulk issue 3, and even ties it into the second story from Spectacular Spider-Man magazine number 1, with a brief glimpse of Uncle Ben's funeral. One nice touch we learn here is that the money Peter made from Spider-Man's TV appearances paid for Ben's funeral, with May believing it to be money Peter saved up from his paper round. I can only assume that Peter's paper round paid very well. The plot for issue 16 is simplicity itself. In the days following Ben's death, May is approached by a salesman, who tells May that Ben bought a new bedroom set for an upcoming birthday or anniversary or some such, and the final payment is now due. May promises to find the money. Later, Pete dons the Spider-Man costume for the first time, simply to get out of the house and clear his head, and he spots the same man saying the same shtick to another grieving widower. Enraged, Spider-Man follows him to another warehouse and meets the boss of the operation, a man called The Undertaker. Spider-Man, despite his relative inexperience, proves his worth, defeating The Undertaker and his men and reports the operation to the police. The plot is pretty perfunctory. It's the characterization where Busiek excels. There are so many good moments in this issue, from Spider-Man learning about his Spider-Sense, to the realization that his webbing can also be an offensive weapon, to his wise-cracking nature being something that was always there, but Peter never had the confidence to let out. Busiek nails the schoolroom material as well. We get the very first hint of Liz Allen's attraction towards Peter, when she tries to talk to him about his uncle's death, and Flash is as massive a tool as he was in the Lee Ditko originals. There's also a few subplots, one concerning a hooded teen with superpowers of his own, and the other following Spider-Man's agent, Maxie Schiff, who is desperate to get hold of Spider-Man to alleviate his own money troubles. Busiek takes the raw elements of the original stories and expands upon them in a logical manner. He gives a good reason for Spider-Man to have spent all of his money, and set up that the Parkers aren't very well off, something that came out of the blue in Amazing Spider-Man number 1. Peter's guilt over his part in Ben's death is consistent with his development in issue 1, although I think Busiek introduces Peter's snappy patter a little too early. He was far more highly strung in the original issues, prone to wearing his heart on his sleeve more, and whilst he does panic a little when confronted with gun-toting thugs, he resorts to the wisecrack too easily. The issue ends with a touching moment, as Peter asks May to tell him what Ben was like as a young man. All told, though, this was a cracking issue, much better than Spider-Man Chapter 1, which covered the same ground, but with none of the finesse. It feels more like a supplemental chapter of Marvels than a true piece of retroactive continuity, but when it's this good, who cares? Issue 17 continues exploring Peter's mood. One of the things really mentioned when discussing Amazing Spider-Man was how downbeat it was, and Boussiet carries that tone over to this series. Peter is very definitely in a funk here, following the death of Uncle Ben, and it's being Spider-Man that helps him out of it. Busiek's way with characterisation is again the highlight of the story, as he explores the way Peter has isolated himself from people. There is even a pretty good scene where we are shown that Peter was always academic, but was friends with some of the other kids, until high school when Flash Thompson came along. Flash was frequently portrayed as a jerk by Lee and Ditko, and here Busiek wisely keeps Flash to one side, really only showing us what Peter sees of him. The main plot of the issue centres on Joey Pulaski, a 15-year-old girl who has her own superpowers, and she and Spidey strike up a friendship. Unfortunately, Spidey learns Joey is quite mad. Drunk on power, she stopped listening to anyone, and has fallen in with a mysterious figure who is paying her to damage a construction site. Spider-Man has no choice but to turn her in. 
Spider-Man never finds out that the construction site business was all to do with Wilson Fisk, the kingpin of crime, who won't appear properly until Amazing Spider-Man issue 51. The main plot is fine. Busiek does well, having Peter's feelings of isolation, guilt and responsibility compared to the release of being Spider-Man, and Peter struggles to balance the two. Pat Lee has Joey look like a 90s kid with backwards baseball cap and converse on, which doesn't really fit in with the original stories, but does emphasise that on Marvel's sliding timescale, these adventures would have been taking place in the mid to late 1980s. Nowadays, Peter didn't get bitten until the 21st century. Think about that. Where the story really works is in exploring Peter's feelings. He doesn't just feel isolated at school, but in his Spider-Man identity as well. He feels apart from people like Thor and the Human Torch, and is struggling to find his place in the world, a feeling familiar to all kids of his age. His first connection comes with Joey, who, let's be honest, is Dotty. Joey has let the power go to her head. She doesn't care who she hurts, and is pretty much a loose cannon. She has similarities with both Murray Jane and Jessica Jones, and it would have perhaps been more interesting if Bendis had used Joey Pulaski instead of Jessica Jones. You know, if Bendis paid any attention to continuity other than his own. Another subplot that Busiek has bubbling in the background is Maxi Schiff, Spider-Man's cash-strapped agent. Spider-Man flatly refuses to return to showbiz, leaving Maxi struggling, but a dangerous-looking man arrives on Maxi's door, a man Maxi hopes will bring an end to his money problems. This comes to a head in the final issue of the miniseries. With Aunt May really struggling to make ends meet, Peter decides to take Maxie up on his offer and agrees to do an episode of It's Amazing. Maxie is delighted and books him on the show alongside the dangerous-looking man from last issue here, given the name Supercharger. Supercharger turns out to be unhinged as a shock and threatens to kill the studio audience, which include Flash, Liz, J. Jonah James and his son John. Supercharger is easily the weakest thing about this issue. He's about to kill everyone in the audience and then pauses for a two-page monologue where he tells the audience who he is, how he got his powers and why he's doing what he's doing, none of which is interesting. I really did think Boussiet was going to undercut this massive cliché and was rather upset when he didn't. The real meat here, though, is Peter's characterisation. Supercharger's powers are that of a living battery and Peter wanting to leg it is a nice touch. He's been booked on It's Amazing and bumping John Jameson off the billing is a decent enough reason to get Jonah in the book and pissed off at Spider-Man before Peter even knows who he is. The kicker here is Spider-Man convincing Maxie to give the money back as they didn't really earn it. Not only does this scene show Peter's innate goodness and responsibility, but Jonah overhears it and can't believe that Spider-Man is that altruistic. It has to be an act, thinks Jonah, proving that Jonah is only capable of judging people by his own standards. It's a killer scene, well written but subtle and sets up Jonah's character well. However, one does wonder exactly how it benefits continuity to have Jonah's jealousy of Spider-Man introduced this early on. Spider-Man also beats Supercharger with his brains, using a trick similar to the one he will later use on Electro. All told, this was a pretty enjoyable miniseries. It's debatable whether it truly fits in with the canon and even if it was truly needed, but it was a good read despite the actual plot being pedestrian. This was more an exercise in gap-filling and on that score, it works very well. Pat Lee's painted art is nice but doesn't really fit in with the Ditko aesthetic, something that he will share in common with Pat Olaf. Trying to read this as part of the Ditko run would be folly, I think. It's very definitely best read as retroactive continuity. 
dropping almost simultaneously in the summer of 1995. Untold Tales of Spider-Man issue 1 came out with a September cover date. There's a gold logo with first issue plastered all over the cover. It must have took every ounce of willpower Marvel had to not make this embossed and charge $5 for it, but that would have presumably defeated the point of the 99 cents line. Spider-Man leaps out of the book and into the reader's face. It's very well rendered by Pat Olaf, although the pose is a little wonky, presumably due to Olaf trying to ape Todd McFarlane. Olaf is technically a much better artist than McFarlane, so this doesn't really work. The letters page by assistant editor Glenn Greenberg lays out the main premise of Untold Tales to be a self-contained and reader-friendly book that will have ties to the main series but largely stay free of the continuity heavy stories of the main series. What's interesting about this letters page is it clearly states that one of the conceits of this series was that re-establishing Ben Riley was of paramount importance. It was around this time that Ben was revealed to be the real Peter Parker and the Peter Parker whose adventures we'd followed all these years was a clone. That would change. To Serve and Protect takes place shortly after issue 6 of The Amazing Spider-Man. Opening with Spider-Man taking on The Scorcher, this is pretty textbook. Spider-Man is misunderstood, he's properly annoyed, and despite saving people from The Scorcher and avoiding death himself, he can't quite call this a victory as The Scorcher gets away. It's a pretty big leap from reading The Amazing Fantasy Story to reading this. At the end of the mini, Spider-Man was moderately well-liked by the public. We had barely been introduced to Jonah Jameson, and Peter hadn't given any thought to being a photographer. Here, we are well into the established status quo of Spider-Man's early days. The Scorcher doesn't really look like a villain designed in the 60s, another issue with the sliding timeline. Busiek and Olive have to walk a fine line here, and it'll be interesting to see where this goes as we progress. There's the standard byplay at the Bugle, which did feature a genuinely funny moment where Jonas says Spider-Man must be a bad guy as the police have warrants out for him, ignoring that the police only have a warrant out for Spider-Man because of Jonah. This is followed up by the intriguing scene of Spider-Man deciding to be a cop to get Jonah off his back. He goes to visit the police captain, a George Stacy, to see about joining the force. Stacy tells him that you can't just be a cop. There's procedure and training, and if he wants to go through the proper channels, then fine, but until then, there's not a lot Captain Stacy can do to help him. This is the kind of scene that may push untold tales over the edge. Whilst it's all very well and good, giving us characters who we will only meet much later in the timeline, there is a possibility of making New York seem like a very small place. Having Peter meet George Stacy long before he'll even meet his daughter Gwen may not be over the line, but it is dancing on it. It does set up Stacy's interest in Spider-Man, which he will have as soon as we meet him in the later issues, although Spidey specifically mentioning the murder of Ben Parker to a detective does show his naivete. Spider-Man decides to prove his worth and rocks up to a police cordon designed to capture the Scorcher. He notices a gap in the police firewall and races ahead. He manages to win, more by luck than judgement, and is chewed out when he hands the Scorcher over. Apparently, the Scorcher is supposed to get away, and thus lead the police to whoever is really behind the thefts. Spidey leaves despondent, as a mysterious figure with cornrow-styled hair stalks away in the night, and Stacy wonders if Spider-Man merits further investigation. This is a solid, if unremarkable, first issue. All the elements of the Lee Ditko era are present and correct, and the writing and art are top-notch. The retcons are the main bugbear. There are out-of-continuity appearances for Norman Osborn, George Stacy, and Gwen, tangentially, and I can't decide if these are distracting or welcome. Pat Olive's art is excellent, but it doesn't really look like Ditko, which again is both good and bad. 
Despite filling in the gaps, I don't know if reading these as part of the original run would be recommended. My original idea for the Spider-Man retrospective that I did here was to read these inserted into the narrative at the correct place, and I'm glad I didn't. I suspect that these are better read after the originals and in the context of retcons, rather than as if they were originally conceived as being part of the overall canon, and as such, these will be treated on their own merits going forward. Issue 2 has a cover where Spider-Man is attacked by a weird man-bat-type creature, except he has bulging eyes like a guinea pig. Olive's anatomy is great, but it can't help evoke the famous Bat-villain from the Batman comics. Castles in the Air opens with a horror beat. A wealthy old dude wines and dines a much younger girl with Dom Perignon, but is attacked by a mysterious creature with jagged teeth and red eyes. The man, Brandolph, begs not to be taken, pleading that the creature should take the girl instead, but as quickly as it began, the attack is over. The effectiveness of the opening is somewhat hindered by the cover, giving away both the look and the name of the creature. Next day, Peter Parker is rushing to school, having been up late searching for the winged creature that is terrorising the city. Apparently, the bugle is offering yet another reward for information leading to the capture of the creature that attacked the wealthy old dude who turns out to be a prominent politician. Wrapped up in his own problems, as usual, Peter ignores the insane clown posse led by Flash Thompson, his spider sense warning him to avoid Jason's outstretched leg, but failing to allow for Flash simply stepping in front of Peter, causing him to fall to the floor. The assembled throngs laugh and laugh, and Tiny steals Peter's math notes, and Jason and Sally tease Peter further. Nobody believes Peter could go after the reward, and Jason invokes the name Sergei Kravinov as perhaps being a better choice to hunt this winged mammal. Busiek is concentrating more on the new supporting characters that were only background figures in the Lee Ditko series, largely because he can actually do something with them. The problem with setting stories like this between the panels of other stories is we know what happens to Flash and Liz and Peter, so to create some drama, Busiek has to flesh out some more supporting players. One such player is Tiny. Tiny stealing Peter's math notes is a nice beat, especially when Peter considers throning through a fourth story window just to teach him a lesson. Moments like this humanised Peter in the Lee Ditko material, and it's good to see Busiek carrying them on. A stop by the Daily Bugle reveals further details on the councilman from the opening pages. Randolph Cherry is his full name, and he's a bit of a cliché. He's a typically odious comic book councilman and fully embodies the old rich white dude stereotype. Granted, stereotypes don't become stereotypes without having an element of truth to them. It turns out that the reward is actually being offered by Cherry, and Spider-Man has his large white eyepieces set on it. As with all Bugle scenes, this is fun and has a few comedic moments. Peter is more interested in drumming up the courage to ask Betty Brant out, an element glossed over in the original stories, and Peter's interest in the money is more motivated by wanting some cash to take her out. With this in mind, Spidey swings over to Councilman Cherry and offers his services, a task which turns our hero's stomach when Cherry turns out to be a massive asshole. Somebody else who turns out to be a massive asshole is Tiny's dad. Peter swings by Tiny's house to steal back his math notes and witnesses Tiny's less than happy home life with his abusive father. Whilst Lee and Ditko tackled a number of issues in the early days, they tended to steer clear of more obvious social problems like this one. Peter's reaction, that Tiny's a bully himself and bullies deserve what they get, right? Raises just the right amount of questions in the reader's mind as to what would we do and what will Peter Parker do? Spider-Man spends the night watching the shindig at Cherry's rooftop apartment when, as expected, the creature, nicknamed Batwing, largely I suspect because Man-Bat or Batman were taken, attacks. After preventing Cherry's men from killing the creature, Spider-Man gives chase only to be caught off guard by the big reveal. Batwing is nothing but a child. 
His father and he were on a hunting trip to investigate illegal chemical dumping when his father was killed. Alone and lost, to survive, the kid drank whatever he could, and the water caused a mutation. Reunited with his mother, the kid fled when his mother called him a demon. Spider-Man feels sorry for the kid and is about to offer his help when Cherry's men arrive and screw up the whole bit. Spider-Man helps Batwing escape and webs up Cherry's mouth before tossing him in a trash can. The A-plot, the, the Batwing thing, is pretty by-the-numbers stuff, feeling very much a rip-off of the Man-Bat comics. The twist isn't even anything special, but what saves it, again, is Boosie's characterization and Olive's art. These stories don't really drop into continuity seamlessly. There's too much McFarlane and Olive's art for that, but they do evoke the feeling of the 60s stories. The subplot and how it ties into the A-plot also works really well. It's a story about child abuse, the more overt abuse suffered by Batwing and the far more hideous real-life abuse Tiny suffers at the hands of his father. The ending, where Peter goes to Tiny and offers to help him with his maths, fits in perfectly with Peter's philosophy of helping where he can. There's a selfless streak to Peter on occasion, even though he is frequently self-absorbed and standoffish. He's the hero that could be you. Issue 1 and 2 of Untold Tales took place after Issue 6 of Amazing Spider-Man, and Issue 3 picks up after Amazing Spider-Man Issue 7. Pat Olive and Al Vey provide the cover to Issue 3, a standard shot of Spider-Man, Spider-Sense blurring away, avoiding the Sandman's hammer hands. It's fine for what it is. Sandblasted opens with the Sandman escaping from the paddy wagon the Human Torch left him in in Strange Tales Issue 115. Busiek no doubt surmised that a standard police van wouldn't really keep the Sandman trapped and thought this would be a good place for another meeting with Spider-Man. Speaking of our hero, he's in uncharacteristically jubilant form, celebrating his asking Betty Brandt out on a date. Olive does a great job with the double-page splash, showcasing that old standby of multiple Spider-Mans to highlight the wall-crawler's speed to great effect. Of course, Spidey runs into the Sandman, who surprisingly doesn't want to fight, he just wants to rob banks and have a little fun. And if Spidey will leave him alone, he'll leave Spidey alone. Deal? Spidey says no, and Sandman rescinds the offer and kicks Spider-Man to the curb. It's quite a brutal takedown. Sandman leaves Spider-Man lying on the floor, telling him that if they cross paths again, it'll go much worse for Spidey. Spider-Man avoids the cops by falling into a sewer and struggles home. The next day, Peter is in a bad way. He's covered in bruises and can barely walk without wincing. He's in so much pain he barely notices the kids at school talking about the Spider-Man-Sandman fight and is completely oblivious when Jason Ionello pushes him to the lockers, knocking him out. This is quite an interesting scene. Busiek, over the course of Untold Tales, manages to make Ionello more of a dick than Flash Thompson ever did, and Lee and Ditko never shied away from the fact that Peter could get hurt as Spider-Man, so having Peter be in so much pain is a believable touch. The Sandman wasn't pulling his punches, and it's a good example of the power set of Spidey's adversaries. Peter takes a trip to the school nurse, where the condition he's in raises her curiosity. But, as she knows he lives with an elderly aunt, it can't be abuse. She elects to ignore it due to Peter's reputation as a studious boy, which begs the question, how stupid is this woman? Sure, Peter may not be being abused at home, but these clear signs of bullying aren't worth reporting. At work, we have entire safeguarding teams who we can report stuff like this to, but this nurse doesn't think it's worth mentioning that this student's body is covered with bruises. Does she even attend the safeguarding meetings? Has she not sat through the PowerPoint presentations, done the online training courses? Pfft, I'd be firing her ass. 
Depressed, Peter heads to the Bugle to develop the pictures he took of Spider-Man's humiliating defeat. He's a whiny little baby to Betty who hasn't done anything wrong, and once again Peter wonders if he is a coward. Taken in isolation, this is all okay, but as a continuity implant it does take away somewhat from some of the later Lee Ditko stories, where Spider-Man is beaten and comes back. Still, Peter takes Betty out on a date and she gives him the kind of pep talk normally reserved for Aunt May. Peter takes off, full of resolve, but given that he ditches Betty at the restaurant, doesn't even offer to walk her home, I'm surprised she ever went out with him again. As Spider-Man, he confronts Sandman again. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Surely Spider-Man went in with a plan, you're thinking. Well, no. He just happens upon the Sandman through sheer dumb luck, lures him into a building that, also by sheer dumb luck, has an experimental turbine in it. He traps Sandman in the turbine, and the issue closes with Peter returning to the Bugle to give Jonah some pictures and apologise to Betty. Again, this issue wasn't bad. Kurt Busiek is incapable of writing a bad story, and the art is great, but I was left with a feeling of emptiness after it. This issue is solely an exercise in filling in the gaps. When did Peter start dating Betty? Why is it a personal vendetta between Sandman and Spider-Man? Gaps that don't really need filling. It's not a story in its own right. Issue 4 has a symbolic J. Donor Jameson in the background, holding Spider-Man and new villains, the Spacemen, in his hands as they prepare to attack each other. The Measure of a Man opens with John Jameson on assignment from NASA, filming our hero fight, the aforementioned Spaceman. Gentry, satellite, vacuum and orbit. It turns out that NASA is interested in Spider-Man as a potential astronaut, news that has the predictably soothing effect on J. Jonah Jameson. This is a really effective opening. The spacemen aren't villains I'm familiar with, so they could have been created for this, and as such they aren't squeezed in as much as Sandman was. Olive's art is kinetic, and Spider-Man's wisecracks fluid and natural. As this is the beginning of the issue, the spacemen get away, but it's all handled effectively and with excitement. The safe that the spacemen were protecting is found later, with its hinges broke and the money missing, and Jonah thinks that the smart money is on Spider-Man having stole it. I thought this was a bit of a leap, no, that no one would even suspect the Spaceman. But then again, this is J. Jonah Jameson who puts this theory forward. We are also opening in media res, and this slight plot inconsistency will be addressed later. Jonah is doubly vexed that John, his son of all people, had suggested to NASA that Spider-Man may be a good candidate for the space programme. It's a logical idea that NASA or other supergroups, such as the CIA or the military, would be interested in all these super beings that have popped up. But as far as I recall, other than with a few characters, it's never really been addressed. The story then has a cross-narrative, something done exceptionally well. Over scenes of Peter's home and school life, John Jameson muses to his father what Spider-Man must be like as a person under the mask. He is, of course, completely off-base, thinking Spider-Man must be an outgoing athlete with plenty of friends, an active social life, and who must live alone. This was very interesting to read. Peter often frets about people putting two and two together and making a connection between he and Spidey, but in these early days, why would they? Spider-Man is often funny, gregarious and snarky, as well as outwardly appearing confident and assured. Peter's none of these things. He takes bullying from Flash Thompson, such as when Flash offers him a lift and then drives off, not even shooting a web ball up Thompson's tailpipe. It's nice to see Tiny is at least trying to defend Peter, something Flash doesn't understand. Busiek has tempered Flash a little in this series, perhaps to match up with later characterisation. In the lead Ditko stories, Flash is frequently an asshole of the highest order, and also borderline psychotic. Here, he's still a bully, but he's more playful. 
Jason Ionello, however, is much more deranged. The reason that nobody suspects the spacemen of robbing the safe is then revealed as we cut to a press conference. Apparently they are the newest media darlings, a dedicated super team launched in a top secret rocket to duplicate the effects that caused the Fantastic Four. And they are now here to apprehend Spider-Man and then work in whatever capacity the government wish of them. Jonah laps this up like a dog with a steak, but John has questions. He doesn't know what government agency these guys can be connected to, nor does he know of any secret rocket launch, something somebody as far up in the chain of command at NASA as he would be aware of. Jonah, showing himself to be a terrible journalist, completely dismisses these claims. I mean, really, what did Jonah qualify? He has an inside track here to somebody who's questioned these guys, and he never once says to John, okay, follow it up and let me know what you find. Instead, he immediately embraces these goons as the second coming and publishes a special edition all about them. I do so hate when Jonah is a buffoon just to get at Spider-Man. The Bugle then publishes edition after edition praising the spacemen in their efforts to apprehend Spider-Man, conveniently mentioning the amount of money that goes missing at every event. John again questions this, but Jonah? Nah, must be Spider-Man. John even notices that they even seem to be letting Spider-Man get away at every encounter. John Jameson is a pretty good observer, and he'd probably make a better investigative reporter than his old man. Jonah isn't the only moron on the payroll. Phil Sheldon and Ben Urich are also in the crowd. Do they not think there's something up with these guys? Or has Jonah told them to back off and let him handle the spaceman story himself? Whilst it's very much in keeping with the characterisation of the time, a man who continues to let his own blind hatred colour his writing isn't going to have a paper to write for for very long. This isn't like having a particular political agenda that the Bugle follows. This is outright stupidity on Jonah's part. Granted, it wouldn't be the first time we've seen a prominent figure outright lie to the public just to improve their standing, but even the most ardent Bugle reader must at some point get bored of reading about how Spider-Man is a villain, especially after all the retractions Jonah is forced to print. Jonah even arranges a ticker tape parade for the Spaceman, and we get a cameo from Harry Osborn and Gwen Stacy. Now, you could argue that this is once again shrinking the world, but Jonah is hobnobbing with Captain Stacy, and Gwen is presumably here with her dad. Despite the love that Jonah has stirred up for the spacemen, Spider-Man still shows up, accusing the spacemen of pulling a fast one. The final battle is really well done. Spider-Man is pulled inside a vacuum, whose powers seem to work in a manner similar to Cloak of and Dagger fame, and Busiek shows Spider-Man's intelligence in figuring out how to escape vacuum's trap. Spider-Man shows that the money is hidden in the parade van and the spacemen are revealed as the crooks they are. Despite my minor nitpicks, this was a corking issue. It doesn't tread over any continuity. The only references to Amazing Spider-Man is a brief acknowledgement that Peter doesn't wear his glasses anymore and Busiek handles the story with action and humour. His work on John and Jonah Jameson is also flawless, especially the last page where Jonah simply can't believe Spider-Man does what he does out of selflessness and therefore must have an ulterior motive. Again, Busiek is banging us over the head with this before it's been revealed in Amazing Spider-Man. But John's final monologue, that the spacemen could have been heroes if they could let go of their petty jealousies, is equally applicable to Jonah, and expands upon the ideas put forth in the Lee Ditko run that Jonah was jealous of Spider-Man's altruism. Jonah comes from a world where he simply cannot understand why somebody would do the right thing for the right reasons, rather than for wealth or power. 
Issue 5, Vulture on the Wing, sees the return of the Vulture, oddly enough. The cover has Spider-Man caught between a feathered bird of prey and a military shooting squad on top of a US Army train. Yikes! Yells our hero as Throw Spidey from the train is emblazoned across the top. Throw Mama from the Train was a forgettable comedy of the 90s that somehow gained some traction due to its title. The cover is well done. Spider-Man's pose is particularly effective, although the perspective is off a bit. It looks like the vulture is leaping over Spider-Man at the soldiers. Al Milgram steps in as Inca, and this is immediately apparent on the splash page. Milgram has a heavier, thicker line than the previous Inca, something that works particularly well in these opening pages. Spider-Man tackles the vulture at night in a rainstorm. The Splash is a wonderful recreation of a Ditko illustration, but I don't know that we would want Ditko recreations in this story. It's the kind of knowing nod to the past that Ditko wouldn't have done, because when he was handling the book, it wasn't the past. Also, artists weren't dining off the work of earlier artists at this point, because they were doing this as all new. Olaf recreating an image that is only a couple of issues old in continuity struck a sour note. Bringing the Vulture back this early also has problems, as does the positioning of this issue. This and the next two all take place within issue 10 of the original run, and plopping a continuity insert in around the already existing narrative is always problematic, and far more difficult than saying, well, this story took place in between issues 5 and 6. It turns out that the Vulture was in jail following the events of Amazing Spider-Man issue 7, but a pre-programmed set of wings flew over the jail wall and picked him up. He immediately set about doing crime, and Spidey immediately set about finding him, which brings us to the fight here in Times Square. The Vulture has souped up his wings and manages to ditch Spider-Man, but is so confident that he tells our hero what his next target will be, an experimental atomic accelerator that the army is bringing through town on a train tomorrow night. The Vulture dares Spider-Man to stop him and flies off. Another excellent opening to an issue. Olaf and Milgram complement each other brilliantly with the heavier inks really suiting the nighttime rainfall. The colours are really cool as well with the lights of New York offsetting the nighttime blacks. It's a typical Spider-Man fight scene. He's overconfident and as such almost loses. The crowd don't know who to trust, him or the vulture, and our hero has a Parker look moment when his camera is smashed. But when it's as well handled as this, I can read it over and over and still enjoy it. The next day, Peter tries to brush off Aunt May's nagging to go to the optometrist about his broken glasses and heads to school. Peter's a bit concerned about going to the eye doctor, as he's afraid he will spot something that will give away his secret. This is a bit silly. I know my first thought upon seeing skinny young Peter Parker wouldn't be, my, it's Spider-Man. Well, this was the kind of thing Peter fretted about all the time. At school, the usual group of goons, Flash, Liz and retcon Sally, Jason and Tiny, tease Peter with a pair of glasses Flash made from some old cola bottles. Flash is laughing the other side of his face when Liz and Tiny defend Peter, with Liz even going so far as to compliment Peter's looks. It's the nature of the beast that Boosie can't really follow up on a lot of this, and it is somewhat undermining of the original material where Pete had no support at school. That said, whilst Tiny is quite likeable in his own way, Jason is a bigger ass than even Flash on his best day. Flash had a few rough edges and could be a raging sociopath, but every now and again he did something reasonable and borderline honourable. Jason is simply a nasty piece of work. It's also worth noting that Busiek's school dynamics often feel more like the later Ultimate Spider-Man series than the original books, right down to a tiny-like character named Kong. Over his lunch hour, Spider-Man drops by intolerant blowhard General Thunderbolt Ross to tell him the Vulture's plan. 
Ross, displaying the calm and rational demeanour he was famous for in The Incredible Hulk, doesn't believe Spidey when he says he's reporting this for love of country, and then fires guns at him. Spider-Man half hopes the Vulture does steal the atomic accelerator. Thunderbolt Ross was always an interesting character, even if he is practically a carbon copy of Jonah. Back at school, Peter is subject to a cruel prank where Jason steals all of his clothes from his locker in gym. A ghast flash Tiny and Liz all round on Jason, but Sally Avril thinks the prank was kind of funny. Peter gets his clothes back and swings over to the Daily Bugle where he hits up Jonah for an advance and then hits on Betty. Only one of these things goes well for him. Then, as Spider-Man, he gets hit by a reinforced alloy net when he tries to board the train with the atomic accelerator on it. Thunderbolt Ross has come prepared. However, the Vulture used Spider-Man as a diversion. Whilst Ross is busy with him, the Vulture sneaks aboard the train and nicks the atomic accelerator. Spider-Man breaks free of the net and pursues the Vulture, gaining the upper hand when the Vulture is confronted by a tunnel and a very temperamental atomic accelerator. Spider-Man returns the atomic accelerator to General Ross. Whilst at the malt shop, or whatever, Jason sits and stews, his jealousy over Flash brewing over, and he starts to plot how he can get the gang to notice him over Flash Thompson. This issue is fun if we ignore that Amazing Spider-Man 10 takes place over a larger period of time due to the blood transfusion Peter gave May, which rendered him weaker than usual, and that isn't mentioned here at all. Still, as with the train that it was set upon, this issue rattles along at a good speed, and the art is nice. Untold Tales issue 6 features Spider-Man and the Human Torch on the cover, leaping towards us whilst avoiding missiles and various explosions. The torch looks a little weird with black eye sockets, but it's a nicely coloured cover. Double Jeopardy opens with Spider-Man catching a jewel thief before school. The cool morning air is interrupted by the Human Torch, who zooms past Spidey, telling him he has to get to LaGuardia Airport as it was the first. Spidey thinks the torch is a couple of great balls short of a fire, but the jewel thief informs Spidey that the wizard is currently matching wits with the torch. Spider-Man, realising that there are two answers to the wizard's riddle, doesn't head to LaGuardia Airport, but rather to the old home of Friorello LaGuardia, the first mer of New York. Spider-Man arrives just in time to see his hunch was correct, and the torch has been faked out. Spider-Man rescues the people in the house from a gas attack and heads to school. Another great opener to an issue of Untold Tales, because it shows how smart Peter is, but also that he really doesn't instantly turn this into a competition. He's happy to let the torch deal with the wizard so he can get to school on time. Speaking of school, Peter arrives to see Flash and the gang all agog over these developments. School bobblehead Sally Avril thinks this wizard torch grudge match is all too exciting, whilst Flash thinks that the wizard's book smarts would be no match for the power of the torch or Spider-Man. Irony! Liz Allen, surprisingly the voice of sanity, points out that if the wizard didn't think brains were important, he wouldn't have attacked when Reed Richards and Hank Pym were out of town. Flash is obviously one of those people who thinks that you're an elitist snob if you've ever read a book. Still, his radio clues Peter into the wizard's next move, and he skips school to go solve it, thinking the torch probably couldn't figure it out on his own. This time, he's wrong. The torch did figure out the riddle, something about the only building in New York that isn't wrong being the Guggenheim Museum, because it was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. The torch and Spidey work as a team to thwart this part of the wizard's plan. Busiek has a great handle on the torch-Spidey dynamic. Spider-Man teases Johnny about the LaGuardia cock-up, but together they work out how to prevent this second of the wizard's traps. Spider-Man isn't even too offended that the Torch wants to kick him to the curb and deal with it himself, until the police inform the Torch that they have a team of experts to help him figure out the clues. 
The Torch is so incensed, he drags Spider-Man with him, suddenly promoting Spider-Man to co-star of this little adventure. This does all beg the question as to why the Torch isn't at school, but he didn't seem to go to school much at all, which may explain why he needs Spider-Man's help. Together, the two heroes successfully thwart the next three of the wizard's traps. Realising that they could spend all day doing this, Spider-Man proposes they go on the offensive. At the Baxter building, Spider-Man has a really nice scene where he geeks out over Reed's equipment and builds a device to track the wizard's broadcast signal. There's also some really cool teamwork on behalf of our torrid teens that Buziak uses to show how these two became friends. Together, they triangulate the wizard's signal and bust him. The ending is funny, with Spider-Man casually outsmarting the wizard, which understandably bruises his weak ego, and all's well that ends well, with Peter even making a tidy sum from Jonah for his pictures. Busiek tells a solid team-up story here, with two characters that shouldn't really be friends but are, and this is a previously unseen piece in the puzzle that was their friendship. As of this issue, he's still sandwiching stories between other stories, again, ASM 10, but he's building his subplots nicely. Jason Ayoello and Sally Avril, a match made in Gossip Girl if ever there was one, have hatched a plan to uncover Spider-Man's true identity, and Busiek is setting up stories for further down the line. And further down the line, we will cover those stories. So far, Untold Tales has been a fun, if unsubstantial, continuity implant, and where it goes from here will be probably far more interesting. Uh, we'll take a brief break though, and when I return, we will delve into the email sack. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a show called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, wherein I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But let's cut the crap, alright? Mostly I spend most of my time talking about comics because, honestly, comics are my first love. So, beginning in March 2017, I'm going to change things up a little bit. I'm going to be joined by Rebecca Johnson to talk about Harry Potter movies. Three. Three Harry Potter movies. Rebecca Johnson will be joining in to discuss The Sorcerer's Stone, The Chamber of Secrets, and The Prisoner of Azkaban. But that's not all that's going on. Also joining in is Professor Allen to talk about the three Chris Nolan Batman movies. Yes, indeedy, we're hashing through Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. Six episodes, six movies, Two guest hosts, one regular host, which is to say me, Magnus, and the fun starts on March 7th, 2017. Only at twotruefreaks.com or iTunes or whichever obscure Japanese webpage that syndicates my show without my authorization for some reason. I don't really have a problem with that, you understand? It's just it's kind of weird. That's all I'm saying. But whatever. Six movies, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Batman Begins, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, The Dark Knight, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and The Dark Knight Rises. You got that this mega-series is starting in March, right? Just making sure.
And we're back after a commercial message. Hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I did. Uh, more of that coming further down the way. Okay, let's carry on by delving into the email sack. And our first email tonight is from, or today, or morning, or afternoon, or whenever you listen to this, is from Nathaniel Wayne, called Yucking Over Star Wars, which was presumably about the Star Wars commentary release. Nathaniel was the only one who commented on that. Which, you know, maybe for the best. Who can say? I'm psyching myself up for Rogue One, listening to you lot yakking over Star Wars, says Nathaniel. Going to record some random thoughts that sprang up as it went along. Think of it as a live tweet of a commentary track. I could totally buy that Luke wouldn't know what a lightsaber is. Not only is he on an isolated planet that, by all indications, the Empire and the Republic before it had no use for, but he was raised by his uncle, who had plenty of reason to keep stuff like knowledge about the Jedi from him. While the prequels missed the opportunity to flesh Owen out, at the very least it's clear in this film alone what a low opinion he has of Jedis and the Clone Wars. And if Luke's a farm boy, I'd be apt to think he hasn't had much proper schooling too, being too busy helping out on the moisture farm. If he's taken classes in anything, it would have been practical stuff like vehicle maintenance and power converter procurement, and not galactic history. See, I kind of think that if somebody had invented a weapon as fantastic as a lightsaber, elegant though that weapon may be, I'm hard-pressed to imagine that the entire galaxy would have forgotten about it. Now, I know you can argue that only Jedis or Sith can actually build lightsabers because of the kyber crystal and all that all that drivel. But surely enough knowledge of the Clone Wars would be around, which lest we forget was less than 19 years before at the point of Star Wars once we taken all the prequel retcons. Surely some of that would have seeped through to him. I mean, you don't have to study in history to know stuff that happened less than 20 years ago. I mean, you know, my kids know, well, I was going to say know what vinyl LPs are, but that's, you know, that's because they've come back in. But, um, I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to ponder on that. The reworking of It's a Small World into It's a Death Star is my new favourite thing. Uh, That, we came up with that when we were queuing up in Disneyland in, God, it must be about 2012 now, 2013 Maybe 14, 15, 16, I don't know when it was. It was a while ago. And uh, it's in one of the early episodes of Hey Kids that were recorded in Disneyland um, when we went to Disney. So that's been around a while. So the fact that we remember the lyrics to it is quite remarkable. I'm always on the lookout for a more wretched hive of scum and villainy than Moss Eisley. There have been some contenders, but I haven't quite found it yet. You've not been in some pubs in Manchester then. Valid point on the no droids policy. I always used to wonder, and now I'm adopting that explanation. By that same logic, I expect to see more pubs adopt no designated drivers policies. <laughs> now, see, the problem with that, Nathaniel, is I, I have no memory of what we said about the wretched, uh, about the no droids. There should be a band called Fat Man Jabber. <laughs> there should totally be. Is that, do you think that's, um, you think that'll be a jazz band, Fat Man Jabber? Uh, the art student goes total Judas and praises the death of millions of artists on Alderaan. Does he have no appreciation of what that's going to do to the galactic economy? Who's going to pay back the student debt for all those useless degrees now? <laughs> the, the Empire will just have to, to write that off. Can you imagine if Tarkin had lived and uh, the Emperor had, had brought him to book for that? 
So who's going to pay all the Rand's art debts now, my Grand Moth? Why does Han have that remote blaster thing? I need to get that used offensively in the Han Solo movie. Um, is, is it is it is it target practice for blasters as well as lightsabers? Because oh no, because it fires lasers at you, doesn't it? See, maybe it can be reprogrammed to just dart around the room, and you have to hit it. Because there was something similar to that in Star Trek The Next Generation, I think. Crap. You just made me realise that Vader is canonically much younger than I tend to think of him as. Early 40s tops by the time he bites it. Yep, see, that's another thing about the prequels. If Anakin was... Oh, God. See, the, the timeline's always been a bit fuzzy. If There's ten years definitely in between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. And then it's how long does the Clone Wars go on for? And I've read... Different accounts that say it went on for as little as three and for as much as ten years, the Clone Wars. So, yeah, Anakin was in his late 20s, early 30s at the time that he became Darth Vader. And then, presumably... So he could have been in his 50s. I mean, it all depends on which timeline you believe. The Clone Wars series ran for six years. So if that's six years in real time... But it could have ran longer. Like I say, I'm sure I've read some of the Clone Wars lasted 10 years. But I've read other accounts that differ. But yeah, yeah, he was mid-40s. Easy. Uh, sorry, special edition made more sense with that massive garrison. Otherwise, Han's reaction makes no sense. Suddenly he's terrified of the exact same number of stormtroopers he was just chasing. No, it doesn't work out. If it'd been a smaller, oh, bollocks reaction, maybe. Why was a garrison of stormtroopers hanging out there? Duh, maybe it's another drill. Um... I don't, I know, but I always got the impression that that scene was in the solely so Lucas could say, look, we can do CG stormtroopers and they look convincing. Um, I mean, I always got that Han was chasing the stormtroopers and they reacted to the fact that they thought maybe Han was, there was more of him than, than perhaps they thought there was. But as soon as they're backed up against the wall and have to turn around and fight, Han's outnumbered and knows it. So he turns around and legs it. I always had a problem with there being that many stormtroopers who were shit shots and couldn't hit him. But, you know, only stormtroopers are so precise. Yeah, right. Uh, Nathaniel continues, as somebody who's trying his hand at creative endeavours, I think Luca's instinct to change the films is understandable, which is not the same as forgivable. As consumers of Star Wars, we just take it as given and love it. As the creator, he's always going to be thinking of what he wanted to do but couldn't, or what he'd do differently if he did it now. The difference is most other creators shrug and move on to something else. Once it was clear that Lucas's entire legacy was going to be tied to Star Wars, I think the temptation to go back and mess with it just became too great. Yeah, and at that point, somebody should have taken him away and let him lie down until that impulse went away. Oh, come on, Andy. Nobody likes the Y-Wing. Wait a minute. Are they called X-Wing, Y-Wing, etc. in the movie? Doesn't Star Wars have a different written alphabet from English? Yes, it does. It's Arabesh, isn't it? How in the cocking hell do they know an X or a Y or an A even is? That, that's actually a very good point. And I do like Y-Wings, so meh. Porkins was also in the 1989 Batman. Lieutenant Eckhart got gunned down by a pre-joker Jack Nicholson. There was a point where Porkins was in everything. 
He's in Flash Garden and he's in loads of stuff. Superman 4, Raiders. He's in... I can't remember what else. Hang on a second. If the Empire didn't know about the thermal exhaust port being a fatal flaw, and they didn't until they analysed their attack during the trench run, why did the trench have laser towers that are aimed in a way that they can only shoot at things flying in the trench? Um, I suppose it's always possible they thought that something may get in the trench, but they didn't know about the thermal exhaust port, because as we then discovered from Rogue One, the thermal exhaust port being a area of weakness was implanted by Mads Mikkelsen's character. So, um, it's one of those things that we've just watched that film far too many times, and now we can nitpick it to death if we choose to. I think the thing with the Death Star Trench run is to just get swept up in the whole euphoria of it and stop going, eh, why have they got lasers though? It makes sense that they've got lasers everywhere. They're the Empire, they're the bad guys. Wait a minute, did she just, oh god, no, dirty dancing while offering praise to Twilight? The world is upside down. Uh, I don't remember, but yeah. Wedge did not abandon his post, Luke told him to go. Yeah, semantics. Maybe they can't warm up the gun whilst the station is in motion. No, that's weak, never mind. They, they could have blown the moon that was in the way out of the way, but I think then they probably would have had to recharge it to blow up Yavin, which would you know, have given the Rebels more time to do what they were doing. I think it makes... I I think that's people nitpicking something. The drama of the scene is that they can't attack until the moon's out the way. And let's, let's assume it's just an iPod and it needs plugging in for a bit. Why don't they use the metal ceremony music more often in the series? Well, is the metal ceremony music playing in the camera? So are they hearing that music as the characters? Because if they are, that, that is pretty cool. And maybe it could have... Maybe it was a top ten hit in the Star Wars universe, along with the Cantina Band. In fact, that's something maybe we should do. We should do top pop songs in uh, in the Star Wars universe. They probably don't have many pop songs. I think everything seems tinged with jazz or, you know, some lapty neck type number. That was probably a number one breakout pop hit on Tatooine. Uh, I'd have had some drinks whilst listening, except as I, I was at work and they took my flask away. Off to Rogue One, geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, thank you very much, Nathaniel, for those thoughtful comments. Uh, none of which I could really help you with because we recorded that a good 18 months before I actually listened, uh, released it. Uh, and it only got released by accident because I found it when I was cleaning out my hard drive. The original thing was we recorded that episode uh, for one of my drunken birthdays. And then, but a couple of days later, Tunisia got hit by uh, a terrorist attack, and suddenly many of the jokes, what we laughingly refer to as jokes, that we made in that episode suddenly seemed crass rather than just irreverent piss takes, and so I shelved it. And then I just forgot about it. And then I thought, well, the world isn't getting its sense of humour back anytime soon. So I just I thought, toss it out there and, and let the chips fall where they may. Only you emailed about it. So either everyone else turned off in disgust or nobody bothered listening. I don't know. I didn't check the download stats on that one. Our next email is from Chris Franklin. Hello, Andy and Mr. Bailey. Hello, Christopher. Uh, Web Spinning Boogaloo is his title. That was a lot of fun. Amazing Spider-Man 2 is my personal favourite of the Spider films. I pretty much agree with everything you guys said. Maguire gets a lot of flack nowadays with endless memes of his crying face all over social media. But I think he was really good in these first two films. 
I actually prefer Garfield in the role, and Emma Stone as his love interest, since they actually had chemistry. But this is still a great, great comic book movie. One of the best, I think. Thanks for an enjoyable two-plus hours. Well, you're very, very welcome, and thank you for, Michael, for stopping by for that episode. Um, yeah, I see I have a soft spot for the Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone ones as well. I think Amazing Spider-Man's a pretty fun and entertaining movie once you get over the fact that they completely botched the murder of Uncle Ben, and then they completely botched the follow-up, where Peter completely forgets about it halfway through the film. That's an incredibly dumb loose end that he never picks up in the second one. And then the second one's enjoyable apart from incredibly flabby midsection, where they just have too much going on because Sony were far more interested in setting up their own franchise of Spider-Man films instead of concentrating on making a good Spider-Man film. This is something that's been really bugging me since the success of Marvel. Marvel went into it with the plan to ultimately bring it all to a head with the Avengers, and then they've obviously carried on with that template after the success of that. But if you look at the movies that led up to the Avengers, every single one of them concentrated on being its own movie. There may have been little nods to what else they were planning, but Iron Man is an Iron Man movie with a bit at the end with Nick Fury in it, and The Incredible Hulk is an Incredible Hulk movie with a bit at the end with um, a reference to the Avengers initiative. And Captain America, the first Avenger, is a Captain America movie with a little bit of Nick Fury at the end. And Thor is a Thor movie with some S.H.I.E.L.D. action in the middle of it. The build-up to the Avengers is not the primary motive of any of those movies. The primary motive of all of those movies is, is to establish the heroes of the piece, Thor, Captain America, Iron Man, and the Incredible Hulk. And, you know, Hawkeye, I suppose, if we count him in Thor as well, and Black Widow in Iron Man 2. The end game was nice... But they weren't. None of those movies exist solely to set up the end game. They all exist as movies in their own right, and setting up the Avengers and then what would ultimately happen down the line is something that's on the back burner. With Amazing Spider-Man Two, they are so obsessed with setting up this idea of a franchise of Spider-Man movies, they forget to make Amazing Spider-Man 2 a good, solid Spider-Man movie on its own. And that's the same thing I think happened with Batman vs Superman. They're so obsessed with emulating the success that Marvel has had. Now, whether you think Marvel movies are good or not, or whether you're one of those people who just thinks they're popcorn, mindless entertainment, whatever, but what Marvel did brilliantly was seed future movies in such a way that it seemed organic, and that the general public got on board with. Not just comic book fans. The general public got on board with the Marvel way of doing it. And then Batman vs Superman just felt very much to me like Warner Brothers said, we want a piece of that pie, but we don't want to do Man of Steel, and then we don't want to do Man of Steel 2, and then we don't want to do a Batman movie, we're setting up the new Batman paradigm, and then we don't want to do a Wonder Woman movie. We want it all now! Because we're greedy and we don't know when this bubble's going to burst. So they chucked it all into Batman versus Superman and just ended up with a mess. Uh, and you can argue, yeah, Wonder Woman was the best thing about it, but she wasn't. She was only there to set up her own movie. Surely it would have made more sense to have Wonder Woman in her own movie first so that we could see why, show us why. She's walked away from humanity. So that when we see her again in Batman vs Superman, it's a big deal rather than it being, a, oh, Wonder Woman's in this film. 
and you know opening up the email attachment cyborg and aquaman and um, whoever the other guy was flash in them that was just like oh let's shoe on these guys in and it no it was just a terrible way of doing it and i think batman versus superman works without those scenes it doesn't work without wonder woman although she con- wonder woman does contribute more to the plot than spider-man does in civil war but so what? Spider-Man's appearance in Civil War was fun. Wonder Woman's appearance in Batman vs. Superman was fun to the extent that that movie needed a little bit of fun. So this building of a franchise over actually making a good film I think is what scuppered Sony's Spider-Man run. But that's just me. I'd, I'd love to hear what you think. Chris is back with uh, another email. The Palace of Woodward Delights. Hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher. Whilst I'd never heard of Callan, I watched The Equaliser every week in my tween to teen years. I'm not sure why the show appealed to me so much, it just did. Having said that, I don't recall much about it other than the catchy theme and that it taught me old guys can still be badasses. I'd forgot Robert Lansing was even in it. Nice to revisit it. You mentioned you'd never seen a single episode of The Andy Griffith Show. That's not really surprising, as it's most definitely a slice of Americana-type show. It's my favourite non-genre show of all time, due to the excellent writing and acting, and the sincere warmth and morality that the show just radiates. If you get a chance, check out some episodes from the first few Black and White seasons when Dot Knotts was still a regular. Since I know you liked The Dukes of Hazard, I think you can adapt to life in Maybury. It's much more laid back and less violent, but some of the characters are similar. Plus, Uncle Jesse himself, Denver Pyle, shows up from time to time as Hillbilly Patriarch Briscoe Darling. So he doesn't show up as Hillbilly Patriarch Jesse Duke. That's be a shame, isn't it? Kind of wished he would now. Oh, and you do these palace shows however the mood strikes you. From random multi-topic shows to in-depth series like the Lee Ditko Spidey coverage. It's all great and all welcome when it pops up on my iTunes. Um, well, okay. I will carry on doing that. I'm sorry, I was just distracted by that text message. It's not very professional, is it? Uh, I'll, I'll carry on doing that then, seeing as you are. Again, you are the only one who bothered writing in about that question. Uh, Professor Allen emailed. Always nice to hear from Professor Allen. It's very rare. With uh, an email entitled Edward Woodward. Andy, I loved the Edward Woodward episode. Well, thank you very much. And a little bit background there. A little bit of that was for you, mate. Uh, other than my favourite TV show of all time, The Equaliser, I only know Woodward from the excellent movie Breaker Morant. I've put Callan on the list, but I don't know how or when I'll track it down. Well, as I said, a red file for Callan, or Callan the movie, is on YouTube. And there are numerous ways that you can rip that video from YouTube, put it on a USB stick, plug it into your TV and, and watch it quite happily. Top tip, that's what I did. Um, the series itself, I think there's a few full episodes on YouTube. Um, I don't know if the full series is on there, but I'm sure you can you can track it down somewhere. Like I said, the DVDs are available. And uh, if you're going to buy them, you can always go through the Two True Freaks link. Because that, you know, throws some money in our tip jar, which is always appreciated. Uh, Professor Allen continues, there are some obvious things to love about the Equaliser, including Woodward's performance. He manages to catch some of the exhausted spy that John Lee Carey's characters have, but without the cynicism. Robert McCall, despite his skills and life experience and the burly concealed anger, is a refined, likeable fellow. That makes all the difference in terms of an ongoing TV show. I don't know if the fact that he's British in the show is ever addressed. I took it as just another part of the mystery surrounding his career. I love the notion that it's rarely, if ever, mentioned. No, I, I honestly don't recall if they ever even refer to it. And it does, because one of the things that I think The Equaliser did great was what they did brilliantly with 
the character of Logan or Wolverine in, in the X-Men comics in the early days that his background was kept just vague enough to keep enticing the reader with, well, well, when did he do that? And, oh, he knows how to do that. And so with, with Robert McCall, it was vague as to who he was, where he was. Because obviously if that George Lazenby show was true, then they were going to cast an Australian in the role. And maybe it was written in such a way that they could have asked any nationality. And when Woodward got it, they just didn't bother changing the script. Because clearly his son's an American. And again, I don't recall if we ever meet his ex-wife. I don't recall if we ever meet Scott's mum. So that would have been interesting if we did. I remember there's the Memories of Manor episode. But is she his daughter? Oh, God, it's ages since I saw that one, so I don't remember. I keep meaning to pick them all up on DVD, and for some reason that box set is still expensive. So I've never got around to it. Anyway, thank you very much for emailing in. It's much appreciated. All three of our emailers tonight have their own podcasts. Professor Allen is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, network sorry, with his daughter, Emily. That's an excellent idea, doing a show with your, with your offspring. I may give that a go. Uh, Nathaniel Wayne is part of the Council of Geeks. And Chris Franklin is part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. All of those lovely people have excellent shows that it's well worth your time to check out. But not at the expense of listening to me, obviously. Uh, as I mentioned, the twotruefreaks.com has a Amazon link that you can click on to go and buy any of the stuff. The Untold Tales of Spider-Man Omnibus that I've talked about today. Maybe a nice purchase for you if you can find it for a reasonable price. And if you go through the Amazon link on our page, that gives us a little bit of a kickback, which keeps us all ticking over to be able to produce the content that you so love. Um, I'll be back next time with whatever takes my fancy. It may be part two of Untold Tales of Spider. It may be something completely different. Who can say? But thank you very much for listening. And the Palace of Glittering Delights is a Two True Freaks presentation. See you next time. Bye-bye.